Welcome back to the analysis.news. I'm Colin Grusantis, and this is part three of my conversation with Paul Jay on the Russia-Ukraine war. Welcome back to the analysis. We're interviewing Paul Jay on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And one of the defenses of the Russian position has been that the United States owns such a huge amount of power internationally that it needs some countervailing power for other people to be able to stand up for themselves. Um, and one of the positions that's been put forward is that Ukraine has uh, is going to have an extreme austerity agenda pushed upon it once this war is over, if it's over. Uh, there was a recent conference in Switzerland that was called the, the Recovery Conference, the Ukraine Recovery Conference. Uh, Zelensky attended that via video along with uh, ranking officials from all the major nations, Western nations. Um, and the agenda that they were pushing looked a lot like the agenda we talked about in 1990s Russia under Boris Yeltsin. And so one of the, the lines of defense is you have to have powerful countervailing powers in order to uh, push this kind of activity, this disaster capitalism that is constantly being thrown upon nations that are in difficult circumstances. Uh, and give them some kind of line of defense. So uh, what, what's your response to, to that line of rhetoric? Well, there's absolutely no reason to think that Russia is a line of defense against austerity. Uh, you know, the, Russia is not, is not some social democratic uh, uh, Scandinavian country. Uh, you know, I interviewed... Um, uh, Alexander Buzgalin, you know, and he was saying if we could ever make it to a social democracy in Russia, it would be revolutionary. Uh, he called the capitalism in Russia, he had this term, uh, Jurassic capitalism, like, you know, the capitalism of dinosaurs. Uh, it's a very brutal uh, capitalism, with, you know, with, with very little of uh, social safety net and so on. So to think that somehow Ukraine... Uh, having a, a, a Russia, a powerful Russia, that would anyway diminish uh, what a post-Ukraine would look like, uh, whether it was you know part of the West or even part of Russia. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. The, but the issue of multi, a multipolar world uh, is a kind of bigger conversation. Um, the the way it's posed is that a strong Russia and a strong China is a countervailing power to a, 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 an American as global hegemon. And thus, some people are arguing, and, and I would say, you know, you get some of this in the, in the Western left, but it's maybe even a more powerful argument in the global South, um, that a, a strong Russia is, uh, is a critical countervailing power uh, and a strong China, even more importantly, uh, to American power. And I think it's true and not true. And, and let me say, to begin with, it makes absolutely no difference what anyone thinks about whether a multipolar world is a good thing or a bad thing. Because this is part of an objective process of development of capitalism. We are in a multipolar world. It's not up for debate. So, you know, 
have a theory, have a debate, write a paper, have a thesis, argue with this academic or that academic. Honestly, nobody gives a shit because it's not up to us. It just is. You know, is capitalism a bad thing? Yeah. And ain't going away because we don't like it. So there is a multipolar world. And honestly, there I, when wasn't there? That's what I don't, I don't actually get when, when was there a unipolar world? Well, there certainly wasn't during the time of the Soviet Union. So when was there, you know, between 1990 and 2000, it was unipolar? Well, if it was so unipolar, why did India continue to, to make most of its arms purchases with Russia? If it's so unipolar, why couldn't the United States force India to uh, transition to a totally U.S. Uh, supply for arms? Even to this day, only recently, has the Indian arms purchases from Russia gone down a little bit. You know, at the end of, uh, of the Soviet Union, in the final year, like 89, 90, the number one trading partner of India was Russia, was the Soviet Union. Where's that, uni, where's that unipolar world? The United States couldn't even stop India from having such extensive trade with the Soviet Union, and most importantly in arms, because there's nothing more important to the United States than which arms network system you're part of. So it, I'm not saying the Americans weren't a hegemon, but let's be realistic about that hegemony. If I can offer a little bit of a challenge to that yeah, position, yeah. is that certainly there have been multiple players the entire time on a very large scale, but who has had the power to organize military coups, to instate disaster capitalism, and to have their major financiers get their fingers in every pie, uh, the way the United States has? Yeah, of course, nobody. But because you're the dominant player in global capitalism, even more important, because you're the manager of global capitalism, including reserve currency and such, and the power of the Fed internationally, of course, very powerful. Uh, the CIA, very powerful. But look at the uh, projection of American military power. One disaster after another. You know, fought to a standstill in Korea, losing Vietnam. Uh, you know, oh, they were so successful in Grenada and they were able to kidnap the president of Panama. You know, lose in Iraq. Oh, oh, you won the first Iraq war. Okay, let's give them that. Lose the Iraq war where there's a real, a real invasion. Uh, lose in Afghanistan. Lose, you know, the, I, I heard that I mentioned Vietnam, which is the obvious one. I mean, all every major projection of U.S. military power has been a debacle. So That's let's not point. exaggerate, you know, this, this ability of the U.S. to determine the outcome of everything. And every one of these big defeats, with the exception of Korea, was done virtually by the people themselves with very little external support. <clears throat> you know, Vietnam got some support from the Soviet Union, not much from China, uh, but not a lot from the Soviet Union, not nearly as much as one would have expected because the Soviets didn't want to antagonize the Americans. 
you know, the, the Iraqs, Iraqis fought and, and basically won, the, making the uh, American troops withdraw without any, ex a little bit of external support from Iran, but not that much. I mean, it goes on and on. So, you know, this world that people try to imagine that the Americans are pulling the strings of everything. Uh, did the Americans really want all these left-wing governments to get elected in Latin America? No, they fought tooth and nail to stop the elections of Chavez and, and Morales and Lula. Uh, but the people were fed up with these American-backed dictatorships. And the people demanded uh, democratic elections. And even if the Americans did everything to undermine, or they had some successful coups in Honduras, but, you know, in spite of that, like, you know, the people are a factor in history. And maybe in the end, it will be true the people make history. But the peoples of Latin America are what defied this American domination. And of course, the Americans used, and not the power of their military. Like, what is it that constrained Lula? It wasn't a threat of U.S. invasion of Brazil. That would have been insane. In, in a million years, the United States cannot imagine invading Brazil. They would be eaten alive by the Brazilian people. No, they used the power of finance. You know, they threatened Brazil in terms of interest rates and bond markets and, you know, what they would do to the Brazilian debt. And, and also, of course, the, the Br Brazilian elite, still powerful, and the role of the religion and on and on and on. The, uh, but they didn't control the outcome of everything. And now, imagine this. Who's the biggest trading partner of Brazil? And I think every country or almost every country in Latin America. China, number one trading partner, in spite of no military projection at all, and in spite of this global hegemon, couldn't even keep China out of their own bloody Monroe Doctrine backyard. So, you know, U.S. is not so in control as one they would like to be. Of course, the American would love to be in so in control, but they're not. I mean, why does Biden have to go with his tail between his legs to Saudi Arabia? They can't even control the Saudis. The Saudis just have to hint that they're going to cozy up to the Chinese and the Russians, and Biden has to rush there and say, oh, please don't do that. It's And it's not... It's not that they don't interfere wherever they possibly can. It's not that the CIA isn't active everywhere. Uh, it isn't that they don't use the power of, of, of finance to dictate and blackmail. They do, but only with relative success. Sometimes they're more successful, other times not. Uh, but in general, they haven't been as successful as some people suggest as they, you know, they're not as domineering. Like I said, they couldn't get India, you know, to stop buying Soviet and then Russian arms. And this is true in other places as well. So, okay, is this, but is it more a multipolar world than it was? Yes, of course, especially China.
but Russia too. I mean, Russia as compared to 1990, before this invasion at least, was certainly a far more powerful entity than it was through the 90s and in the early 2000s. Um, China, of course, is the far bigger story, and it's part of the Russian story because the more the Russians can depend on China, it helps strengthen Russian support. But even Russia to get militarily involved in Syria, I mean, it's, you know, no, where is there another power other than a China? And the China are too smart to do that. But who else could actually militarily uh, come close to being face-to-face with the United States? <coughs> so yes, this is a more multipolar world than it was. Okay, is that a good thing? Well, yes and no. It's a good thing that the countries of Latin America and elsewhere have an alternative to the United States for financing. So the fact that it it, it diminishes American blackmail that countries can go to China and borrow money. Now, some people argue that the Chinese are every bit as predatory in the loaning of money as the Americans are. Let's assume it's true. I don't know if it's true, but let's say it is. It's still a good thing because it's an alternative to American blackmail, which will, because of, especially in places like Latin America, but also maybe in Africa and, and other places, um, it, it is, it's, a, it's a very useful thing to be able to say to the Americans, uh-uh. We have somewhere else to go. So you can't screw with us the way you're used to it. Um, and I would say the same thing goes for Russia. To the, it has nowhere near the capacity of China. But the fact that Venezuela uh, was able to get uh, buy arms or get some arms subsidy from Russia, uh, that was a good thing. It, it helped. I don't really think the Americans really had any agenda to invade Venezuela. Uh, If you want to stoke Venezuelan nationalism, and the people of Venezuela are not shy about fighting for their country, for their people. If there ever was a U.S. invasion of Venezuela, the opposition would have been demolished completely. I, I think I've been there a bunch of times. The Venezuelan people would not accept uh, quiz, Venezuelan quizlings. So I actually really don't believe, the, and the Americans know it, I don't believe the Americans ever intended to invade. It's also an example of the limit of American power. I mean, why haven't the Americans been able to overthrow Maduro yet? I'm, I'm no Maduro fan. I, I obviously totally oppose the Americans having anything to say about who governs Venezuela. In fact, I have I don't think the Americans have, should have anything to say about who governs anywhere except the United States. But it's a, it's an expression of the limit of the power of the United States, even in Monroe Doctrine country, Latin America. They couldn't, they can't get rid of Maduro, and obviously they wanted to. Um, so 
that's a good thing. That the, still, it's a good thing Venezuela could get arms from Russia. It, 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 it at least mitigates the threat of the U.S. intervention. So, so mult, this multipolarity, it has some upside. Um, it's not transformative. Um, you know, the people talk about the BRICS, the BRIC countries, you know, what is it, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Uh, it's a good thing to the extent those countries can diminish American financial power, to the extent those countries can, uh, you know, have alternative to the World Bank, IMF which is so American dominated, it's a good thing. But it's not going to change global capitalism managed by the United States, certainly not in any uh, foreseeable future. I mean, look what's going on with the U.S. dollar right now. It's like through the roof. All the United States had to do to make the world buy more dollars was add a couple of points of interest on, on what, on the American uh, treasury bills. And all of a sudden, everybody's buying dollars again through the roof. All the rest of the currencies of the world, except for Canada, because oil's up. We'll see how long that lasts. But almost every other currency of the world's tanking. Oh, they had, look how little they had to do. Raise interest rates. So the global economic system, capitalist system, is dependent on American management. And nobody in the capitalist world, including the Chinese, wants that to end. The Chinese need the American market as much as the Americans need the Chinese market. Um, the Chinese own, what is it, a trillion and a half U.S. dollars? They don't want that to turn into nothing. There's no alternative that's feasible in, in any horizon. It doesn't mean there couldn't be a, a, a new currency created for trade between Russia and China. Uh, you know, maybe some other countries, but it's going to be very limited uh, for this historical period. Now, it can change. If you get a Trump or Trumpist elected and in 24, and he's whoever he or she is, probably a he, is going to be as crazy or crazier than Trump. And they start to really play out Steve Bannon's dream of a war against China, at least a much more serious economic war. And it puts China in a corner. Uh, then China, which is China's already preparing for this. And, and a lot of other countries are thinking this through now, including European ones. Um, they may say, you know what, as disruptive as it's going to be, uh, we can't play in that world where the Americans control our finance. And we're so damn big, we don't have to. So maybe, you know, we'll take our medicine and start to decouple from this American-dominated capitalist system. It's possible. I don't see it happening under the, you know, as long as the majority of the elites, financial elites represented by the Democratic Party, as long as they control 
foreign policy and economic policy. I don't see it happening. Like the Black Rocks of this world are increasing their investment in China. Apple is, others are. Um, you don't give up on a billion and a half person market unless you're a fanatic. But the fanatics may come to power in the United States. Uh, they did in Germany, why not in the United States? So, so I don't see that happening. So we're looking at a multipolar world within a capitalism managed by the United States. Now, here's the rub about, I've given some pluses of the multipolar world. Here's the not pluses. Regionally, the major powers, even if they're in, in, in contradiction with, even antagonistic contradiction with the United States, it doesn't mean they can't be their own villains in their own regions. And as progressive people, we have to be able to say, just because you're fighting against a regime that's anti-American, we aren't going to content, condemn you as being puppets of the United States. Like I was in Georgia, and you know the country, not the state, after the uh, Russian involvement there. And I talked to a lot of Georgians. And the progressive Georgians' position was no to NATO, no to the West, and no to Russia. That was the progressive position. But they supported the overthrow of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Zakavili regime, Zakavili government. They wanted the pro-American government out. So they were condemned as being pro-US. In fact, it's happening everywhere. Any place, even, even some of the left was condemning uh, the uprising in Cairo as being pro-American just because Obama... And the Americans had their own reasons for sympathizing with it. You know, a lot of things I don't agree with Mao Zedong about, some I do. And one of them was people have a right to rebel against reactionaries. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. And it doesn't matter whether your government is anti-American. If it's reactionary government, if it's repressive, if it's a police state, people have a right to fight it without being accused of being American puppets and all the rest. And some of this is Russian propaganda or propaganda coming from, you know, like do the Chinese people, if they want to fight against the Chinese Communist Party and not, and this is very important, of course the CIA will be there, are there, of course, the Americans will try to manipulate these struggles in their own interests. And people should not fall for that. You know, in Libya, there was a great banner on uh, a building at the very beginning of the war, uh, the invasion of Libya. And uh, when all these threats from Gaddafi were going on against uh, Brindisi, not Brindisi, against uh, Benghazi. Yeah, against Benghazi. So there was this banner unfurled on a big building in uh, Benghazi. And uh, it said, no to NATO, no to Gaddafi. And there was another one that said, NATO, stay out. 
you know, there was a real uprising in Benghazi where people were organizing to resist the Gaddafi government, uh, but they didn't want NATO. Um, now that was crushed. And, you know, the, the NATO countries, uh, led by France, actually, this is another in interesting thing about multipolarity, because the, the French were the ones that really were the lead on the invasion uh, because of Total's oil interests in Libya. Um, and that was crushed. But people condemn everything, you know, some people on the left condemned that resistance to Gaddafi as just being, a, you know, pro-American. Why can't people fight against the Gaddafi dictatorship without being pro-American? I mean, they can and they should, but they shouldn't do it as puppets. Now, here's where it gets complicated. And I'm a little on the fence here. Uh, you know, there's people like Gilbert Ashkar, who's a, a progressive academic, lives in England now. Um, he says if you're going to support people's right, like to fight against Gaddafi, or in the current situation in Ukraine, uh, to fight against the Russian invasion, uh, you also have to support their right to get arms wherever they can. And so you got to support Libyan people's right to get arms, arms only, not troops, he argues, not bombers, but arms. Because his argument is if the people get arms, but no bombers and no uh, foreign troops, then at the end, they end up with guns and they, you know, if they win, they win. But in theory, without foreign control. Um the reason I'm on the fence on that, because in some ways, the principle, I think, is right. Imagine the French partisans fighting Hitler and saying, oh, no, no, you can't get arms from England or the United States. No, 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 no. You got to let you got to fight without, you know, who was the worst, biggest, vicious imperialist in the world prior to World War Two? England. You know, Anglo imperialism colonialism and imperialism up until its essential demise, you know, after the end of World War II, over 300 years apparently killed 1.5 billion people. Like, you know, in the history of war crimes, you know, the Britain takes the prize. Even the United States pales in comparison. Now, you're going to tell French partisans you can't take weapons from the British because the British are the worst colonialists and butchers in the world? It'd be ridiculous. You can say it if you're not living in France, you know, occupied by fascists. You know, life is, life is complicated. It, it, you know, it's, not so, it's not so simple, and people like to simplify it, but, you know... It's not so simple. And the day may come where a Russian state or an American state both can become fascist, so fascistized that we have two relatively fascist states at it, at each other. Um, we're, we're heading into, you know, crazy times. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm going to go into one more pessimistic note or, or dark note before we maybe go into what could be a better path forward and how can we start to articulate goals, public goals that people are demanding of their politicians as well. 
that can can maybe lead us out of this crisis somehow. It's a very difficult crisis to get out of. But first, I do need to bring in one other complication. Uh, and this has come up in some of your past interviews as well, which is that a major war like this, which could very well turn into a long war, um, can serve as cover at a time when we have both an economic downturn right now and a, an escalating climate crisis that either the, the catastrophes of or the solutions to are going to have to be paid for, and to do so within an austerity framework for the average citizen. That if there's a war going on, these are cuts that are necessary. This is austerity that is necessary in order to fight for justice and basically to use uh, the better angels of our nature as a justification to put people through the ringer. Um, so can you speak to the degree to which this crisis, there's an incentive for major powers that are aligned with uh, big economic powers, especially big oil, um, to continue this war uh, and use that as cover for austerity for the masses. Yeah. Well, of course, I agree with all that. But the um, who are the winners so far of the U war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion? Clearly, it's fossil fuel and the arms manufacturers. Fossil fuel and arms are two of the largest sectors of the Russian economy. Disproportionately so. And major sec uh, sectors of the American economy. Not as disproportionately so. I mean, the American economy is more diversified. It's not as dependent on fossil fuel uh, and arms in terms of the GDP, but fossil fuel and arms play a disproportionate role in the politics because of the bribery, uh, campaign financing, and c control they have over Congress and the, uh, the role of nationalism in the American narrative. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting that the uh, Christian nationalists, uh, when they when they march and, and organize, it's not just against abortion. But I've seen some of these marches being overtly pro fossil fuel. I mean, what that has to do with a conviction of being against abortion uh, beats me. Except that we know that a lot of the money helping drive Christian nationalism is fossil fuel money uh, and military industrial complex money. So it would not surprise me at all that when Putin does his calculations about whether to invade or not, um, he looks at what's this going to do to the price of oil. And even if he underestimated uh, the uh, extent of the sanctions, he knew that Europe could not, not, not buy Russian gas. It had to. Uh, an American ambassador, this came out of WikiLeaks at the time of the Libyan war, he said Russia had an energy noose around Europe's neck. And boy, he was right. They do. And Putin knew that. And of course, the American fossil fuel companies are very aware that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would lead to a, an enormous spike in oil prices. Uh, the American arms manufacturing, of course they knew 
billions of dollars go into Ukraine in arms. Oh, yeah. And who, you know, whose arms are they buying? Obviously, it's mostly American. Although I'm, I'm guessing the European arms manufacturers have a piece of the action. Do this, does this consciously go into the making of plans, both on the American and Russian side? It must. You know, I don't know if you can see it in, in, the, in the foreign affairs journals, and, but it's impossible that fossil fuel companies and others and, and their representatives in the American Pentagon and the State Department and the White House, it's impossible that they, they don't look at, well, what's this going to do to the price of oil? And there'll be contradictory interests. You know, the Biden, the Democratic Party and whole sections of the economy that don't benefit from a high price of oil don't like this. Of course, the fossil fuel companies do, the arms manufacturers do. So there's lots of uh, competing interests here. Um, but, uh, you know, the stock market was flying and then the Ukraine war it went down, then it went back up. And, um, and there's tons of money being made during this period. Uh, and there's not, it's not a coherent strategy. But yes, of course, uh, it's, 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 Certainly in Russia, it's a distraction from the problems. Here in the U.S., and I would say Canada too, very soon, I should say very quickly, people actually could care less about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, it's become an abstraction. And, and Kargalitsky says it's true in Russia too. He says there's very little coverage on Russian TV about the war. Um, uh, Putin's deliberately recruiting soldiers from small villages and towns, not from the big cities. So for a lot of people, it's a real abstraction. I, I saw something similar when I was in Israel. Uh, most Israelis, they weren't thinking at all about the occupation and what was going on in Gaza and this and that. Maybe for a few days, you know, when the war is on. Then after that, it goes back to being abstraction if you don't have a kid in the army. Uh, most people are preoccupied with their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed a, a guy that grew up in San Francisco, a black guy in World War II. He said, if you didn't have someone in the army, in your family, you were barely aware there was a World War II. He said, we were just fighting to get through the day. We were trying to pay our rent every month. He said, you know, it was a complete abstraction. You know, we imagined the entire country was at war. You know, maybe at some point with, you know, you couldn't buy this or that or, you know, but so Ukraine is not that much of a distraction anymore in terms of American public opinion. Uh, Biden just has to look tough on standing up to Russia. And, you know, you know, in terms of his domestic politics, uh, that's about it. I, most people couldn't give a damn. Um, but here's where the, here's we'll just. The, the real most serious problem here in terms of distraction. And I don't think, you know, whether this is deliberate, not deliberate, but to some extent it is because how much of this is the power of fossil fuel companies is the complete uh, diminishing of the conversation about climate crisis. And that for me is actually the most important thing there is about this whole thing. Um, I, I would say to the Ukrainians, another 
argument about why they should make a deal in spite of the fact they've lost so many people is because if there isn't a deal made over the war, there's no chance of a deal made over climate change. And if there isn't a deal with Russia, China, and the United States, and then all everybody else on dealing with climate as a, as a global emergency, you know, we are toast. And I, I don't have, and I'll repeat just very quickly, but we're, you know, we're going to hit 1.5 warming in less than 10 years in all likelihood. Uh, in all likelihood, maybe 20 years, 30, maybe we could easily be hitting two and then we're into three, four, like we're into a planet that's unlivable within this century, certainly for most people in the Southern Hemisphere, with extreme weather in much of the Northern Hemisphere. But where are all these people in the Southern Hemisphere going to go other than North? Like if we're not addressing that and immediately taking steps to get off fossil fuel, plant a zillion trees, and give up on the dream of some magic bullet geoengineering technology. Although I'm not against investing some money to look at it. Maybe there'll be something. But let's assume for now there isn't, because right now there isn't other than tons of trees, which is ridiculous. We're not at least doing that. In fact, we're cutting down more trees than are being planted still. Um, so I would say to the Ukrainians, honestly, your problems of sovereignty aren't as important as having a livable planet. And we're in a time frame where you, on behalf of, your, of the planet, but on yourselves, I mean, Ukrainian children are going to grow up in the same climate catastrophe as the rest of us. You know, have your sovereignty in an unlivable world. What does that sovereignty mean? And nobody's talking about it. In the, uh, as far as I can tell, I can't even find a glimmer of that conversation in Ukraine. And I understand why, you know, when you're being invaded and thousands of people are dying. But that is the truth of it. And the truth of it is, and, and, and what is this issue of, of, you know, America has to stand up to Putin? Why? For prestige, for geopolitical influence. Yeah, prestige and influence over what? An unlivable planet. I mean, it's insane. It's in, totally insane. Uh, this capitalism is at the point of utter irrationality. So what should progressive people do in solidarity with Ukraine? Demand a resolution of this. Compromise, yes. End the killing, end the war. Do your best to get back to as close to February 23rd borders as you can. You know, try to insist on a, on a, you know, as much as you can. Now, Ukrainians don't have much leverage here, but try to make climate part of the conversation. You know, make clear declarations. And they're already starting this. There's apparently, uh, Kargalitsky says, one of the most popular politicians in the Ukraine right now is really pushing back against uh, Ukrainianization and any discrimination against the Russian language. You know, pr you know, in solidarity with Ukraine, we should support that. Yes, no discrimination against the Russian language. 
No discrimination against Ukrainian culture in areas controlled by Russia. You know, make progressive demands. But, you know, let's be clear. You know, humanity is, is at stake here. And, and, and we haven't even talked about the threat of nuclear war, which is certainly heightened under these situations. But climate is a, is a, is, is a for sure. It's not a risk. It's a for sure. So we have to say to the Ukrainians, you know, as part of humanity, we need to get this war over and demand a deal between Russia, China, and the United States on fossil fuel. And which, what does that partly mean? It means like a Marshall Plan, where United States, Europe, and China help Russia transition from fossil fuel. Of course, they better do, better do it themselves for it to have any legitimacy. That's, I, I think it's a very important part of the conversation. It's from the mainstream media that I have seen in Canada and the United States, not currently factored in at all. Uh, there really is the line that, uh, well, as, as you've put on, on, uh, on your programming before, uh, that this is being fought down to the last Ukrainian or it's being set up to be fought down to the last Ukrainian. Um, do you see breaks in that narrative that are going more in the direction you're talking about happening in Canada, the United States, in Western countries that are currently propping up what uh, an agenda of war down to the last Ukrainian? Do you see breaks in that? Yeah, maybe. Um, there's increasing news stories and such about how the sanctions aren't hurting Russia as much as they thought that would, um, how the energy situation in Europe is worse than they thought it would be. Um, inflation is being driven higher than they thought it would be by high fuel prices, that the food emergency in the Middle East and Africa is worse. There's a lot of stories in the press now about the downside of sanctions against Russia. And to me, that reflects, well, one, it reflects reality. And two, maybe sections of the elites and, and the population losing some of their appetite for this hyper-aggressive stance towards Russia. Um, I know for Ukrainians, this will feel like a betrayal. But I'll say again, it's not worth dying for a section of the Ukrainian oligarchy. And it's not worth the earth dying because nobody will even at all seriously address climate. Like what's been happening with inflation and to the um, uh, energy crisis in Europe. They're all going back to increasing their fossil fuel use. They're giving up on some of the green strategy, even though the obvious strategy to get off Russian gas is more green. They can't do it fast enough. Uh, so they're, they're, they're going back to more coal. Uh, you know, U.S. is talking about more coal, uh, even though there's tons of oil and gas in the United States. Um, like whatever modest, pathetic, weak climate strategy there was is getting demolished by the consequences of the invasion and the sanctions, both. And uh, so I would say in solidarity with the Ukrainian people, 
you're part of humanity. And us humanity got to deal with the climate crisis. And, you, you know, end this war. And then, you know, what I would say is end the war and use the crisis to overthrow the Ukrainian oligarchy. And create a really democratic Ukraine. And become a model for like, you're going to have to rebuild like the country's you know, to so much extent destroyed. Well, what about a green rebuild? Not an IMF austerity rebuild. What about a green rebuild? And asking the world to come help rebuild a green Ukraine, a green democratic Ukraine. Now that's something to fight for. I think a lot of people would love to join that effort. I think that's a great place for us after a very difficult conversation. That's a great place for us to wrap up. Thank you so much, Paul, for, for delving into this difficult terrain and for addressing a lot of, of challenges and a lot of different perspectives. Thanks, everybody, for putting your two cents in, giving us something to respond to. And thanks for tuning in. Right. Thank you, Cole.